we are starting this new series, 15 weeks, verse by verse, through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, if you're looking for a study guide, uh, they are back there at the Connect desk. You can pick one of those up on the way out. That would be very helpful for you in your individual or group study. But also, um, you can download it. We have it in a, in a PDF uh, if you want to download it from the internet on the redemptionaz.com website. So you can do it either way. And because it is a new series, we're going to spend maybe just 10 minutes introducing some of the background material, like who the author is and what the context is and some of that stuff so that we're familiar with that. So the first thing I want to do is talk uh, a lot about uh, who the author of this letter is. His name is Peter, and it's the Peter from the Gospels, the, the, the famous Peter. Uh, he was one of the original 12 that Jesus called, and people would also say that he's a part of the core group of three uh, that was really important to Jesus, Peter, James, and John sort of the smallest of the small groups uh, that surrounded uh, Jesus. Um, and, and there's a couple of, of different gospel uh, narratives about the calling of, of Peter to be with Jesus. Uh, my favorite is probably in Luke chapter 5, where he's out there fishing, and Jesus comes by and says, you know what, why don't you come and follow me? I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And so Peter does go and follow uh, Jesus. Uh, if you've been around uh, the church thing or the Bible thing for any length of time and you do know a little bit about Peter, you also probably realize that there are essentially two sides of Peter. There's the, the, the challenging side and then there's the upside of Peter. There's the emotional, impulsive, loud, insecure, and feeble Peter. And then there's the courageous, sacrificial, bold, strong, and great leader Peter. Uh, and... and and I want to make this point right out of the gate. So already we're into application in our own lives. Uh, everybody in this room has those same types of characteristics. And we need to recognize that and understand that. And one of the things that would be helpful for us is to realize that the things that we're really good at, so the, the upside, our assets, the characteristics that we're proud of and, and that people find desirable in us, uh, we need to be careful that, that we're humble about that, that we don't that we don't treat those with arrogance or, or oppression or anything like that. We need to be careful. Those are gifts that God has given to us, talents that he's wired us with. And so we need to recognize uh, where these gifts and talents come from. So even though he's given them to us to use, we should still be careful how we use them. But then there's the downside. Uh, some people tend to understand what their downside characteristics are, their liabilities, and they tend to wallow in those a little bit too much. God has also covered those with his grace. Uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't protect them and you shouldn't uh, necessarily keep from leaning into those things if you're not good at those things, um, but also recognize and understand that God's grace is sufficient to be able to cover that and protect that as well. He's not looking at those things in your life saying, well, you're not desirable and worthy to me because of that. And, and as a result, you should not dwell too much on those things either. I, I am what, what people would call a negative self-talker. I have a pretty good understanding of my liabilities, my downsides, and, and a negative self-talker tends to take those things, stick them in their mind, and then dwell on them a little bit too much, and, and I get a little cranky when I do that, and that's not good for the people around me. So uh, recognize that all of us have upside and all of us have downside, just like Peter. But it's interesting in Peter's case, you realize that, that um, Peter demonstrated most of his downside characteristics during one part of the Bible, and then he demonstrated most of his upside of his characteristics in another part of the Bible. In the Gospels, essentially, Peter was a buffoon. Okay? But in the, 
in the, in the book of Acts, post-resurrection, essentially Peter was a stud. Okay? So the, all the stuff that, that he was really good at came out at that time. For instance, in the Gospel of Peter, we know of him as kind of having foot and mouth disease. He was the guy who always, at the exact right time, said the exact wrong thing. Now, thankfully, I've never done that. I've got a couple of family members who've done that, but I've never uh, done that before. Uh, Peter also had the tremendous inability, inability to properly interpret and understand what Jesus was teaching. Jesus could teach something, and Peter was the guy that would go to him and say, what? I don't get it. Or he would actually go and start reteaching it, and it would be completely off base. Uh, at one point, Jesus got so exasperated with Peter that he looked at him and he said, what to him? He said, get behind me. Satan. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, if I'm hanging out with Jesus, that's the last thing I'd really like to hear from him. Um, that and woe to you. Those are the two things that would be really unsettling if Jesus ever uh, said to me. Uh, Peter could also be violent and aggressive at the wrong times. And, and he also, he, he may be most famous for making a promise to Jesus that he did not keep. At one time, he and Jesus were having a conversation, and Jesus said, listen, where I'm going, you can't follow me. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'll go to you even if it means that I will die with you. And Jesus said, mm, no. As a matter of fact, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened. They took uh, uh, Jesus off to, to trial and to crucify him. And people kept walking up to Peter saying, hey, you were with him. You were with that Jesus guy. Peter's going, not me, man. I never knew that guy. I'm just here watching the party. I'm, I, I don't know him. Three times he denied Jesus. And then he heard, and if you look at the story in Luke, there's one detail that Luke adds, that when the rooster crows, Jesus actually turns and looks at Peter from afar, and Peter is just, he's just broken at that point. So he made this promise he couldn't keep. But then, the post-resurrection Peter, the Peter of the book of Acts, he starts out in the book of Acts preaching the greatest sermon probably ever recorded in history. At the risk of death, he uh, constantly stood up to the governing and religious authorities of the day. Uh, he was a bold, in-your-face communicator. He was a great evangelist, a wonderful leader. He was uh, somebody who was used by God to help break down the, the, the barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. God taught him that lesson in, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, and, and it was a magnificent lesson for him to learn. And eventually, G, uh, Peter was actually crucified, uh, outside of Rome, which was the church that he was leading at the time, and he was crucified for his faith. He was crucified for what he was preaching. He was crucified for being a follower of Jesus. And when they took him out to be crucified, as history tells the account, it says that, that Peter said, listen, I do not want to dishonor my Lord, Jesus, by being executed in the same manner that he was, so would you please crucify me upside down? Now, all the studies that some of you have endured about the horrors of crucifixion, uh, I can tell you that then adding the fact that it's upside down must have been awful. So Peter said, listen, I, I'm not worthy of being executed even in the same manner of Jesus. Ultimately, though, this is the thing that we should really understand about Peter because it's important. He spent three years with Jesus, day and night. It's not like he went and worked with Jesus for eight hours and then went home. He was with him literally day and night, traveling with him. He was a part of his band for three years. Now, if you want to just think about this now. If you want to compare, like, training programs for church leadership, okay, 
He was with Jesus for three years. I went to Fuller Theological Seminary for three years, okay? Now, I like Fuller. I'm an alum of Fuller. I teach communication at Fuller, and I'm even going to a fundraising party tonight for Fuller. But I can tell you, we can combine all of the knowledge and all of the experience of all those wonderful Fuller professors, and even throw the Phoenix Seminary professors and the Dallas Theological Seminary professors in that mix, and you still wouldn't even be able to come up with one-tenth of Jesus. It just doesn't work. So Peter spent time with Jesus. And towards the end of his life, he writes these two letters, and this first one that he writes, as uh, Chad read, uh, we'll talk about who he wrote it to, was written mostly to Gentile Christians. This is Peter, the staunch Jew, writing this letter of encouragement and love to mostly Gentile or non-Jewish Christians who have been dispersed in, in, in various areas that would now be considered mostly modern-day uh, Turkey. And the, the rhetoric of the letter is urgent and intense. It's exuberant and exhortative, as one scholar said. So there's going to be passion in this series. There's going to be urgency in this series. So if you're somebody who is not really um, uh, on board with passion and urgency at church, you need to fasten your seatbelt and get an airbag going because there will be passion and urgency in this series. And ultimately, there are four major themes that you're going to see uh, uh, emerging over and over and over during the next 15 weeks. And here they are. Here are the four themes. As a result of the gospel, all right, what's the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ for those who have followed, followed, followed Jesus. In other words, the person uh, that has had God work in their lives so that they understand that they are a sinner, that they have fallen short of the standard set by God, and that as a result of their sin, there's no way they can be reconciled to God. They can't work their way uh, to God. They can't be good enough for God. There's no way that they can bridge that gap between them and God alone. But out of his love and mercy, God sent his son to the earth to, be, to live a perfect life, to be crucified, to be executed, to be buried, and then to be raised from the dead, so that by believing in him, you and I would have eternal life. We would be saved. We would have that gap of our sin between us and God completely rectified and taken care of and paid for. And we would be reconciled with God. That's the gospel. That's the good news for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. As a result of this gospel, Christians have reason to hope, a real reason to hope. We have purpose in our suffering. We have faith to persevere, stand firm, and live righteously. And finally, we have a great inheritance. So that's our intro. Let's go to the text, and we'll start with verses 1 and 2. Ultimately, we'll try to get God willing through the first nine verses. And I will just tell you that verses 1 and 2 is where we'll spend most of our time because uh, scholars say that these are probably, uh, this introduction into this letter is probably the most theologically heavy letter of introduction that we have in the entire New Testament. Here's what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, his ambassador, his representative, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So, really heavy theological stuff. We're not going to be able to get to it all, 
but we'll get to a few things. And the first thing we need to really talk about is that term elect exiles. That, that is theologically loaded. They are elect. Now, there's no way that we can get around this language. What Peter is saying is that God has chosen them. And this language of being chosen is actually um, Jewish language, Hebrew language. It, it's, it's Jewish language that is now applied to Gentiles. In a sense, what Peter is saying is that this church of, Jew, of, of Gentile Christians is actually now the new Israel. Originally, God chose Israel, it chose the nation of Israel to be his instrument of light in the world, and now he's doing it through the church, and it's not just Jewish people that he's doing it through. He's doing it through anybody who has come to faith in Christ, and Peter is acknowledging that. Here's the new Israel, this church of Gentiles. So we are, in a sense, that way as, as well. And it's interesting that Peter, a staunch Jew, would write this, but that's the work that God has done in Peter's life. And by being elect, it also means that God has essentially purposed these people that, he's, that Peter is writing to, and he has purposed you and me today, 2,000 years later, to the same thing, and these are the things that he's purposed us to. Number one, it's salvation. It's the idea that the gospel has worked in our lives, what I talked about earlier, our sin has been forgiven, and we are now saved from the consequences of our sin. We will not spend eternity in a place called hell, but rather we will be united with God and Jesus in a place called heaven, and eventually the new Jerusalem. We are also purposed for sanctification. Sanctification uh, literally means to be set apart and, and to grow in your understanding of who you are in Christ, grow in steadfastness of faith and obedience to Jesus, to actually become more like Jesus. And we are purposed to mission. In other words, we don't just get to be saved and get to be in this relationship with Jesus. We are now sent out to do the work of the church. Uh, John Orberg, who is a pastor in California, says it this way. The idea of the church is that we want to help bring up there, down here. And it's a reference to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, where they pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to be working at trying to build some semblance of the kingdom of God here on earth, because I'm telling you, should agree with this, and you should understand this, we can really do a, a lot of improvement work here on earth, right? I mean, it's kind of a tough place to live, and by being purveyors of the kingdom of God, going on mission and telling people about Jesus, we are a part of that. But then that word exiles is also Jewish language. Uh, earlier this summer, we were in the book of Daniel. And, we, and that was set during the Babylonian exile of the Jews. And, and so this word exile, uh, and, and the Jews constantly refer to the Babylonian exile, it, it's sort of a, a geographical word in that reference. And, and Peter could be using it geographically here as well because he lists all those places where these uh, Gentile Christians are living. But really, he's using it more spiritually. He's talking about how they are spiritual exiles. In other words... Once you become a Christian, once you know Jesus and are reconciled to God, you really are no longer a citizen of this world. You, you begin to feel a little bit out of place in this world. It's like you don't connect or understand as well what's going on around you because you now have a new perspective on what reality is, and you begin to long for your real home, which is actually in heaven with Jesus. As I read through the book of Philippians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, He's all over this as well. 
Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that we are not citizens of this earth, but rather we are citizens of heaven. And we long to be there. And in Philippians chapter, we're just sojourners here on earth. And in Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24, Paul actually takes you through this, this little argument that he has about how really he'd rather be in heaven than alive here on earth if he had a say in it. And I will tell you, I get that. I understand that. I feel that. And I suspect that some of you too. I would describe myself as a Philippians chapter 1 Christian. I look at this earth, and I look at all the junk that's going on. I look at my sin. I am sick and tired of my sin. I look at the sin of others. I look at how corrupt everything is. And I will tell you, I long for something different and better. I long for my real, true home, which is with Jesus in heaven. Paul says the same thing. He says, it would be far better if I just died and went and, and was with Jesus. But he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. His argument was this. I would really rather die and go to heaven, but because Jesus has purposed it for me to stay here with you, and my purpose is to minister to you, I'm going to have to hang around for a little while longer. But I get that tension, man. There are days, I'm sure you feel the same way, too. Here you go. This is how it's best manifested. I am not afraid to die. I remember 30 years ago, I was scared to death of dying because I had no idea what was going to happen afterwards. Now I know, and it looks really good to me. I am not afraid to die. Now, I'm not going to do anything to contribute to my death. Don't worry. I don't need therapy. I don't need counseling. You don't need to email me or worry about it. Okay? I, but I am not, I'll tell you, I am not afraid to die. Now, how I'm going to die, that's a whole different subject. There are some things that I'm afraid about that. I hope I go in my sleep and nobody's there, including me when it happens, okay? But I am not afraid to die as a result of that. So that's just the elect exile. And then notice that the Trinity is there in, this, uh, in these two verses. The Trinity is there. I know some people right now, oh, that doctrine of the Trinity. You know, the Bible never uses the word Trinity, so there is no such thing as a doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, 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 okay. Here you go. Listen up. So at the age of 27, this woman named Jackie enters my life, and I became very smitten with her. Now, I did not walk up to Jackie. By the way, I'm married to her now, so don't get thought about her like this. I did not walk up to Jackie and say, I am smitten with you. But Jackie was busy about collecting the evidence of the doctrine of Frank's smittenness. I'm telling you, she's not an idiot. She noticed the way I looked at her. She noticed the way I would talk to her. Kind of manipulatively. She noticed the way I would talk to her. She noticed how I, I would sort of always arrange to be in her presence, even when my presence wasn't required. And then she noticed the way my hair would spontaneously burst into flames when she would approach me. And so she collected all the evidence, and she formed what she was sure was true, the doctrine of Frank's smittenness for me. She, I didn't have to say, I'm smitten with you. She already knew the doctrine just by assembling the evidence. So the Trinity is there. He talks about how this is all done by the foreknowledge of the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, by the sanctification of the Spirit, and just for obedience to the Son by the sprinkling of his blood. So this is done by the foreknowledge of God. God knew that this was going to happen, but not only did he know it was going to happen, he was also the cause agent in making it happen. His foreknowledge is not this 
weak foreknowledge where he just kind of knew what was going to happen because he's God and he knew what he would decide, but rather his foreknowledge has authority and power. He has the ability to cause or allow or change things in happening. And it's also uh, by the sanctification of the Spirit. And this sanctification is actually in two levels. We are sanctified when we first come to Christ. We are immediately set apart. But then there's that ongoing journey, process sanctification that I've talked about before, about how uh, the Spirit dwells within us, and it's by the power of the Holy Spirit doing it in us that we become more and more like Jesus. And that's the goal. And that power only comes, the power of sanctification only comes from the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you want to get better in your life, if I want to get better in my life, we really can't do it. Our will, our power, it's not enough. It always withers in the face of the pressure of this world. So the Frank Switzer Improvement Project cannot be accomplished absent the Holy Spirit in my life. And he says also that it, this is for obedience to Jesus, sprinkling by his blood. That we will obey Jesus, and not only that, we'll do it because we've been sprinkled with his blood. I need to talk a little bit about this. This is an interesting topic today, uh, especially in church culture. Uh, the Bible clearly teaches blood atonement or blood payment for sin. That is the clear teaching of the Bible throughout Scripture. You cannot get away from it. The way that sin is washed away, paid for, redeemed, forgiven, expunged, whatever language you want to say is by the blood of Jesus. But this is a, a, a not a very popular doctrine, and it's becoming increasingly unpopular in churches today. But just because it's unpopular doesn't make it any less true. I will tell you, I have sat with pastors and priests, and more than one or two, uh, and we've had meals together, and they looked me right in the eye, and they said, we decided to quit teaching blood atonement for sin. And my question is, well, what do you do with all the blood atonement passages in the Bible? He says, we just don't teach them. Why are you not teaching this? It's too offensive to people. It's, it's unpopular. People don't like it when we teach blood atonement, so we would rather not teach it. I run into pastors who are doing that a lot. But it doesn't make it any less true. Truth is not measured by popularity or pleasantness or convenience or context or a willingness for somebody to accept it. Let's say Jackie, instead of deciding that she was also smitten with me and she reciprocated my smittenness, I like to say smittenness, have you noticed that? Anyway, let's say she decided that she didn't want to reciprocate my affection for her. That would not have been popular with me, and I would have been deeply offended by that, and I wouldn't have liked it. So do you think it would have worked if I had gone to her and said, listen, it's very unpopular with me, and I'm offended that you don't like me, therefore you have to like me, and I don't have to accept that as truth. It doesn't work that way. Truth is. And the truth of the blood atonement just is. Recently I started doing the, the Twitter thing, and, and I will tell you, the best person to follow on Twitter, uh, it's not Mark Driscoll, it's not Perry Noble, it's not Matt Chandler, it's not Jennifer Aniston. It is Sean Mortensen. Y'all know who Sean Mortensen is? He's an elder. Yeah, that's Sean Mortensen. He's an elder in this church right here. It's great. It's wonderful. I guess that guy knows more about college football than anybody in this room. I'm not very if you follow him. Uh, first service, he picked up six new followers because I said this. Anyway, um, about a week ago, he tweeted this. 
John Mayer's album, Born and Raised, says two things. I'm desperate for truth and purpose, and do whatever you want because there is no truth. Let me, let me say that again. The lyrics of John Mayer's album, Born and Raised, says two things. I'm desperate for truth and purpose, and do whatever you want because there is no truth. That's the culture we live in today. The culture we live in today is people who are out searching for truth. But then when they get too close to truth, and they find that there's some uncomfortable and inconvenient parts of truth, then they tend to back away. People want all the upside to truth. They want all the good parts of truth. They want the stability, the security, and the foundation that truth offers in their life. But they don't like the other stuff. They don't like it when truth is inconvenient. They don't like it when truth makes them uncomfortable. They don't like it when truth confronts them and challenges them where they are. That's the part they don't like. So people are good with truth as long as it affirms them and tells them how wonderful they are and encourages them. But the minute truth looks at them and says, listen, you've got a problem in this area, then they say, I'm not interested anymore. I want to be able to do whatever I want. And I will tell you, the person who treats truth that way is never going anywhere and never going to grow in anything and never going to understand anything ultimately. Listen, I'm like anybody else. I am an affirmation addict. And I love to be encouraged. But I will never get better at anything. I will never have greater understanding of anything if people also don't speak the uncomfortable, challenging truth into my life as well. And you are exactly the same way. The Bible teaches blood atonement for sin. That's how sin is paid for. And that's how much God loves us that he sent his son to do that for us. So there you go. That's just two verses. And we only skimmed a tree top. Got seven more. Don't worry, I'll go a little bit faster. Next three, verses three through five. Peter writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter's saying, I think that he should be blessed. Why? Here's why. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is amazing. Why did God do this? Why does he save us, sanctify us, and send us on mission? Why does he love us so much? Why is he so good to us? Because of his great mercy. He's doing this not because we're necessarily special, but because his character cannot allow him to do anything else. He loves us that much. And as a result of his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And I know those words, born again, are troublesome for, for, for some people. But again, it's biblical truth. You are not a person here for just a remodel. We're not going to slap a little coat of paint on you, maybe rearrange a few little things and put two, new tile in your kitchen. The idea behind Jesus Christ and the gospel is not a remodel. This is new construction. You are a new creature when you are in Christ. And God is the author, architect, and, and chief cause agent of this new life. And this new life gives us a living hope according to the resurrection of Jesus. The scholar named Edmund Clowney, who said this, Hell begins when hope ends. One of the greatest things that you and I as Christians have is the hope that God has given us through the resurrected Christ. This hope is firm and assured because
because Jesus defeated death through his resurrection. And it is a living hope because Jesus is alive today and his spirit lives within us. And so that brings us to this point where really the big idea behind today's message is this. The normal Christian life is death and resurrection, not mild reform. If you're somebody who wants to come to Jesus or come to church just because you need a little tweaking, it's not going to work out for you. Jesus isn't in the business of tweaking or fixing or repairing. He is in the business of raising, knocking you, deconstructing everything and building a whole new you. You are a new creation. And then in verse 4 he says that we receive this inheritance that, that is kept in heaven for us. Listen to the characteristics of this inheritance. First of all, he says it's imperishable. Literally what that Greek word means is that it cannot be corrupted or spoiled in any way. Anybody in here ever gotten a hold of an egg or milk or mayonnaise that's been spoiled? It's not pleasant, is it? That suddenly, something that's wonderful, eggs, milk. Yeah, I know some of you are into this, but I am. Eggs, milk, mayonnaise, okay? Something that's wonderful. The molecular changes over time into something toxic. Something good becomes something toxic because it is perishable. Not this inheritance. This inheritance is imperishable. It will never fail, uh, spoil or fade or be corrupted. He also says that this inheritance is undefiled. That word undefiled literally means it is pure and without uh, flaw. Pure and without flaw. There's a little word study that some scholars like to do in relationship to this <coughs> Greek word, undefiled, meaning pure and without flaw. It's the word, our word, sincere. The idea of being sincere. Are you sincere about that? Literally, the word sincere means without flaw, or even more literally, it means without wax. It's a combination of two Latin words, sin meaning without, and siri meaning wax. And, and what it comes from is actually from a time, about the time that uh, Peter wrote this letter, whenever somebody would make a sculpture or a vase or whatever out of marble or whatever they were using, if there was, if there was found to be a flaw or a crack in the sculpture and they wanted to sell it, what they would do is they would take it to the showing and they would drip melted wax into the flaw and kind of smooth it out. And it would blend in really well with the marble. But the problem is, is that once somebody bought that, that sculpture or that vase or whatever and took it home, eventually that wax would yellow and the flaw would become obvious to the person. And so they wanted to find <clears throat> these flawless or sincere without wax sculptures and vases in order to buy so Paul, uh, Peter is saying here that this inheritance is without cracks, without wax. It is pure. And finally, he says that it's unfading. Literally, that word means eternal. It's never going to die. And then he says, on top of that, God is keeping it in heaven for us. And literally, the word kept, the Greek word translated kept, literally means held in protected custody. This inheritance is being protected by God. I don't think it's going to get away from him. And then he says that this is all being done by God's power. He has sense of theme here. He has sense of theme that this is all being done by God's power, that you and I, really, all we bring into this, into this equation is our sin. That's what we bring. 
and God's power does the rest of it. And then he says this is going to be revealed in the last time. In other words, all the mysteries that we have about salvation that surround salvation, and, and I get into these conversations occasionally. I wonder what really happened at the cross. I wonder how our salvation really works. What really happens? How does God change our hearts? All of those things. Peter's saying that's going to be revealed to us at the proper time when Christ returns. And then verses 6 through 9. He starts to really drill down uh, in talking about salvation. And he says, in this, in the fact that you have this living hope, and you have this sanctification, and you have this inheritance, in this, you rejoice. This is what gives you joy. The, the uh, fluctuating circumstances and situation of your life, that's not what's going to give you joy. What's going to give you joy is this relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. In this you have, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me just stop there and talk about this. This idea that, that we're being tested, and that our faith is even stronger than, than gold, even though it's been uh, put into a crucible and heated up. This is the same language Peter uses here that James uses in James uh, in the first chapter of his letter. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says this. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials of many kinds in your life. Now, here you go. He doesn't say if you encounter trials, tribulations, sufferings in your life. He says when. The inevitability of life bringing us trials, tribulation, and, and sufferings, we'll never be able to get away from that, even though we desperately want to. Peter and James are saying, instead, rejoice in the fact that this is coming at you, because it's going to test your faith. James says it this way, rejoice in this, because the testing of your faith will produce in you perseverance. And that Greek word that we translate as perseverance could also be translated as patience, endurance, and steadfastness. How many of you would like to be known as somebody who perseveres, who is steadfast, who is patient, patient, and has a lot of endurance? I would. Well, the only way we can get that is through the testing of our faith. So, so Peter and James both are taking things that you and I think are awful in our lives. I hate suffering. I hate it when life gets hard. I hate trials. I hate tribulations. I hate unexpected junk coming into my life. And, and they're saying, no, 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 no. This is designed to test you in your faith and to help build your character. That's what Peter is saying here. And after he says that, look at verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you do not see him, and, and, uh, though you do not see, uh, see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And next week, that's what he really drills into is, let's really talk about this salvation. But he says, listen, even though you weren't with Jesus, even though you didn't see Jesus, you still believe in him. Peter is saying that there's a certain blessing that comes from the fact that we and the people of this dispersion were not with Jesus, yet we have faith in him. 
There's this kind of a special blessing that comes with that. I mean, think about it. Peter and James and John and all those guys, they, they saw and were with Jesus. You and I weren't, yet we believe. There's a sense in which the faith that the Father has given us is kind of blood dope. It's like it's been jacked up on steroids. It, it's a different kind of faith that we have. It's a level of faithfulness and heart change that God needed to give us and the Gentiles that Peter was writing because all we have is testimony. We weren't with Jesus. We have to rely on the testimony of those who were before us and the testimony of God's word. We weren't there. You know, Jackie told me about Jackie was the one who told me about Jesus. I had to rely on her testimony and then rely on the fact that she pointed me to the Bible and started reading the, the testimony of God's word. Peter lived with Jesus. He watched him die. And he was one of the first people there at his resurrection, confirming that it happened. It's like an eyewitness at a trial. I don't know if you've ever been on a jury in a trial, or, or you've been, just been sitting in the gallery in a trial. You get an eyewitness on the stand, and they are sure of what they saw. They know what they saw. The problem is convincing the jury that that's what they saw. The jury wasn't there. So there's a different level of convincing that has to, has to go on with that jury. Trying to get that jury to believe is a whole other realm of belief. You and I have this faith. And this faith has and is saving us from eternal condemnation, from a life without hope, from suffering without purpose, and for an inheritance that is pure, perfect, and eternal. So what's the so what of these nine verses? What's, what would be some action points or some take-home? I've got a couple. First of all, I want to go back to something I said earlier. The normal Christian life is death and resurrection, not mild reform. The first so what would be this statement. Quit looking for a life of mild reform or a self-improvement project. Just quit looking for that. If that's all you want, you can do that under your own power, but you're going to wither under your own power when challenges and suffering come. How many of you have ever started a diet under your own power and it didn't last? How many of you ever started training for a marathon under your own power? You know how difficult this is. Your life in Christ is not a new coat of paint on an old body. It is demolition and reconstruction. The normal Christian life is death and resurrection. Second of all, that leads perfectly into the second point. Learn to live a life that dies to self. I mentioned last week that God has really been impressing this upon me. After being a Christian for 27 years, he's just now saying, okay, Frank, it's time to take this to this level where you understand that you really need to die to yourself. And that means that some of us need to examine what we think is the foundation in our lives. And if our foundation is our own intelligence, our own wisdom, our own power, our own strength, our own education. That's all perishable, as Peter said. It's going to do us ultimately no good. It's not that there's anything wrong with those things, but absent the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, they are going to get us nowhere when crunch time really comes. It's the power and wisdom that only comes by God through his resurrected Son, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we should be looking for. And that's the only way we can live a life that dies to self. And finally, we actually prayed this week 
the uh, uh, that we were studying this at the preaching collective. We actually prayed that our congregations would feel two things as a result of these verses and this passage. Number one, we prayed that we would be humble and thankful. We prayed that we would be humble and thankful for what God has done for us through His Son and by His Spirit. I talk to people all the time, and they lament their prayer life. My prayer life stinks. I don't pray enough. I don't know what to pray. I, sh I don't go to prayer. All of us have a testimony about how our prayer life could be better. What I've discovered is that, for the most part, our prayer life aren't as bad as we think they are. But this idea of being humble and thankful, that's where we're really falling, falling short. That's where we need to be lamenting the idea that we should be more humble, we should live a life of humility, and we should live a life of thankfulness and gratefulness for what God has done for us. We live in the most privileged culture, nation, society in the history of this world. And all the, most of us do is gripe and complain all day long. Instead of being thankful for what God has done for us. The second thing we'd like you to feel and think about is to understand that you and I cannot win the fight to eliminate suffering and trials in our lives. That is a big deal in our culture today. It, it's almost as though people have decided that this is a part of the rights that the founding fathers of this nation have guaranteed us. That we will never have to suffer. We will never have to do anything hard. We will never have trials or tribulation enter our life, even if we're the one that causes it. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what it guarantees. That's it. But it's not guaranteed that we're going to eliminate suffering or never have to experience trials. Jesus comes and he says, he preaches clearly. He teaches uh, absolutely clearly and with power that we are going to experience trial, tribulation, and suffering in this world. He says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. But then he says, but take heart, I have overcome this world. And, and his teaching there, and the language of Peter here in, in the first chapter, and the language of James in the first chapter of the book of James, all say the same thing. The purpose of Jesus in your life is not to remove you from suffering, it's not to remove you from difficult, difficult circumstances, but rather, most of the time, he's going to have you remain in the suffering in those difficult circumstances and give you the power to figure out how to get through it. So many of us just want to say, hey, Jesus, take me around this little problem. Jesus is saying, I could do that. I have the power to do that. And occasionally he actually does that for some of us in our lives. But the vast majority of the time, his MO is to say, buckle up. We're going to go through this dog together. Because that's where you're going to learn. That's where you're going to draw closer to me. That's where your faith is going to be tested. That's where you're going to learn about perseverance and maturity and patience.
give us the courage to be able to live by these truths. God, empower us, give us grace, mercy, and humble us where you can. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.